Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word and for how you reveal to us in your word your name, your glory, and the good news of salvation through your son, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope and the joy that we have in Christ. I pray that today that hope and that joy would be strengthened, that it would be deepened, that it would be rooted even more firmly as we consider the timeless and eternal truth of your word. We pray your blessing in our time together in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. Our text for the sermon this morning is the book of Genesis, uh, the whole thing. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'd like to take us in a little bit of a walkthrough through this book. And before we do, I'll ask this question. Um, obviously, it's December. We're ramping up towards the Christmas season. And the question is why? Why do we celebrate Christmas? You guys are here at church, so you know Jesus is the reason for the season, right? We all know that. But I want you to think more deeply about it. Why is his birth specifically something that we celebrate? Why do we make such a big deal about a baby? I mean, we like babies. My brother and his wife, Courtney, they just had a baby. So little Milo is probably watching from home. So welcome to Redemption Hill Church for the first time. Uh, We like babies, but Christmas is about more than just liking babies. It's about more than sentimentality. It's about more than meals with family and presents and snow and all the good food we enjoy. Why do we celebrate his birth specifically, Jesus' birth? Because think about it. We could celebrate perhaps his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry, maybe his first miracle. But why do we make a big deal about his birth as a baby? To answer that question, we're going back to the beginning. We're going back to the book of Genesis, and that will be our text today. And I want to consider a key theme that winds its way through every scene, every story, every chapter, every generation of this compelling book of beginnings. And it's the theme of offspring. It's the theme of offspring, the birth of babies. In Genesis, and therefore the rest of the Bible, what we discover is that hope, hope for people, hope for sinners, hope for those who live life under a curse, hope for those who are separated from God, hope for those who experience the brokenness of the world and broken relationships and sickness and death and kidney stones and all of that, hope is tethered to the promised offspring. God has made promises in his word to fulfill his saving purposes through the seed of the woman, through the offspring of Abraham, through the lineage of the tribe of Judah. And the New Testament makes it clear that this hope of offspring that begins in Genesis ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas every year, is really the fulfillment of ancient promises, ancient hopes for people who live under the curse of sin and death. And that is why the birth of Jesus is anticipated in the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Luke. It's anticipated by the faithful. It's announced by the angels. It is marked by the magi. And that's why we celebrate each December. Because hope is tethered to the promised Offspring. So I want to trace the development of that theme together and consider this morning three reasons why we find hope in the promise of this offspring. And the first, number one, is this. 
The offspring of the woman will achieve victory over the enemy. That's the first reason why the birth of Jesus is cause for hope. Because the offspring of the woman will achieve victory over the enemy. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Before we look at Genesis 3, I'll quote from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how chapter 1 opens, and it closes this way. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's how the first chapter begins and ends. God's creation, we learn, was brimming with glorious potential. And in the midst of this good creation was a marvelous garden where our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were made in God's image, were given everything to enjoy. They enjoyed fellowship with each other and with their maker, and they were provided richly with everything they needed and commissioned to cultivate and subdue the earth as God's representatives. They were his personal um, sort of vice regents in the created realm, and they enjoyed the blessing of his presence there in the garden. But we know all of that changed, didn't it? Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The immediate result (coughs) of Adam's sin, the immediate result of that failure, was shame. Adam and Eve realized with these newly opened eyes that they, by their sin, had not just done something evil, they had actually become evil, which meant that the fellowship and openness they once enjoyed with God, they once enjoyed with each other, that was now destroyed. The dignity and the honor that they enjoyed as bearers of the divine image, that was now tainted And so they covered themselves in shame because they knew there was something wrong in them. Their shame, verse 8 tells us, is coupled with fear. They hide from God because this thing that used to be a blessing, the presence of God, walking with God, talking with God, now the presence of a holy God is perceived as a threat. So they hide, which does little good. God comes to deal with his creatures. Adam, where are you? Eve, what is this that you have done? He questions his creation. Then we find God also speaks to the serpent in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Unlike the man and the woman, the serpent is not asked any questions. There is simply judgment that's pronounced on him. He's given no opportunity to explain himself, no opportunity to confess. In fact, his judgment serves really as a, the centerpiece of this whole dialogue because God first questions the man, then the woman. Then he announces the consequences for the serpent. Then he announces consequences for the woman and then for the man. So there's a, a pattern here that places the serpent directly in the middle. He is right in the crosshairs and receives the harshest condemnation. The ground from which Adam is taken is cursed. But the serpent, to the serpent, God says, cursed are you. Cursed are you. And he's sentenced to crawl on the ground, to literally eat dust in humiliation. But in addition to this humiliation, there's also a promise of conflict. Look in verse 15. A promise of conflict. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, there's that key term, and her offspring, he The offspring of the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's really addressing not just the the creature, but the evil personality behind this creature, Satan himself. And God announces there's going to be a deep and abiding war between good and evil. A war between God's chosen people that he's going to redeem and his mortal enemy. And it's a war that will span generations. We see this conflict between the woman and her seed and the forces of darkness in the generations that follow. We see this war in chapter four as Cain kills his brother Abel. We see a satanic conspiracy in Genesis chapter six as satanic powers seek to corrupt human nature and forge their own chosen line of offspring to pollute and counteract God's plan It leads eventually to the flood. We see this this genocidal rage in a man named Haman in the book of Esther as he attempts to to completely exterminate and wipe out the people of God. We see the murderous jealousy of King Herod as he hears of the birth of Messiah and has all of the baby boys in Bethlehem slaughtered. This enmity, this hostility between the seed of the woman and between the serpent It's something that lasts generation after generation. Satan wants to wipe out this offspring because he knows his defeat will come at the hands of the chosen seed. But this announcement is not just bad news for the enemy. It's also good news for God's people. This is the first hint of the gospel. It's often called the proto-euangelion, the first good news that's announced in Scripture. And it gives us hope. There is hope that one day the seed of the woman, her offspring, will crush the head of the serpent. We see this hope very early, even in the beginning chapters of Genesis. Although the people of God experience pain as they live life under the curse, they have hope that something's going to change through the promised offspring. In Genesis chapter 4, Verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You can almost feel the, the hope in this announcement of the naming of her son. God is giving us offspring. God is helping us. God is doing something for us by providing offspring. 
Sadly, those hopes would be dashed as Cain turns out to serve the enemy and not the Lord. But even after Cain kills his brother Abel and Cain is banished in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, we see Eve speaking once again. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve's hope is alive and well. You can feel the pulse of her faith as she names her sons, waiting, longing for God to keep his promise and bring victory over their enemies, bring deliverance for people under the curse through the promised offspring. This conflict and this hope are really intertwined all throughout history, thousands of years into the future, and then it comes to a climax in the New Testament as we meet a young girl named Mary who bears a miraculous son. God gives her offspring, and through him would come the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3. Because Jesus would wage open war on the forces of Satan. 1 John 3, 8, the apostle writes, the reason the Son of God appeared, think about the birth of Jesus. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The demons would often scream and beg for mercy in the presence of Jesus as he drove them away. Mark chapter one, verse 24, the unclean spirit cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They knew the ancient promise. They knew why Jesus had come. This conflict intensifies as Satan uses Judas to betray the Son of God. Luke tells us that Satan enters into Judas as he goes to cut a deal with the Pharisees. And when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks at him in Luke 22, 53 and says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus would be bruised, he would be scourged, he would be crucified on a cross, put to death but his death would mean a decisive victory over the serpent. Colossians 2.15 tells us that by his work on the cross, that God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, those powers of darkness, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus Christ. It is his work on the cross that strikes the death blow to Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Listen, hope is tethered to the promised offspring because he wins the victory over the enemy. And this is good news for us as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we commemorate Christmas, we ought to be reminded that in Jesus there is hope for us. There's hope for people who may at times experience fear, people who experience that dread because we know that today there is one who rules as the prince of the power of the air. He is called by scripture the God of this world. We know that he is a liar, that he's a deceiver, that he is a murderer, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're told that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, 
There is this present darkness at work today, and sometimes you might be tempted to become fearful. Sometimes you might be tempted to think that it looks like we're actually losing. There's times throughout history, as we read every page of Scripture, where it felt like the people of God were losing where it looked like God's promises were actually somehow in jeopardy, where it seemed at first glance like God's promises had failed. But every time God provides another offspring, deliverance through Esther, a warning through an angel so that Jesus escapes to Egypt, and after three days in the tomb, the stone is rolled away. And what looked like a great failure, what looked like the end of God's line, this promise, this hope through offspring, that hope triumphantly is announced on the third day. When the angel says, he is not here, he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Now go tell his disciples that Jesus is alive. We can have hope. Our hope is tethered to the offspring, to Jesus. Hope in Christ even when it feels like and it looks like the conflict with the enemy seems like it's not going our way. This also encourages us when we feel the difficulty of wrestling with sin and temptation. We have a lot in common with our first parents, with Adam and Eve. We too have failed like Adam. We too have often been deceived like Eve, but we can hope in Christ Because it's not up to us to build some fig leaves and cover our own shame and somehow fix our own problem. We can't do that. But deliverance for us, not just deliverance from the power of the enemy, but even undoing the consequences of our own sin, that comes through Jesus Christ. It's not up to our efforts. It is God's provision. We share in this victory through the gospel, through the working of Jesus Christ. So when you look at the little nativity scene and you see the baby, think about the promise of offspring, the promise of seed, the promise of a child who would one day be born, who would fulfill this promise of victory. Christmas should be a victory celebration for us as Christians. This is our hope. There's a second reason for hope. Not only does the offspring give us victory over the enemy, but secondly, it's the offspring of Abraham who brings blessing for those under the curse. Flip over to Genesis chapter 12. As the story of Genesis progresses, we see uh, in the story of the flood, and we see in the Tower of Babel, that God's judgment can limit the spread of the curse, but judgment cannot cure it. It will take a work of grace to do that. And this work of grace begins in Genesis chapter 12 says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Chapters 3 through 11 of the book of Genesis, with just a few exceptions, have been dominated by this point by failure, by sin, by unbelief. And the result of all of this unbelief and sin has been nothing but cursing. 
Man works under the curse. Woman labors under the curse. The earth itself is cursed. The first society was destroyed by a flood. The second society, rebuilt after the flood, was confused and scattered at Babel. And we start wondering, is there any hope for the human race? Is there any way out of this cycle of sin and cursing? Well, it's against the dark backdrop of cursing that this startling promise of blessing emerges in chapter 12. The word blessing appears here five times. God is not going to allow the cursing that is so prevalent in the first 11 chapters to be the last word. Blessing will be the final word. And though this promise of blessing includes land and offspring and God's favor for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the result of God's blessing on them will be nothing less then blessing for all the families of the earth and will include the eventual reversal of everything that has gone wrong in those early chapters of Genesis. It's a promise of grace, a promise that will one day meet our deepest human need. This blessing will ultimately come to all the nations, all the families of the earth through Jesus Christ and through his redemptive work. Both Matthew and Luke in the New Testament trace Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham. That Jesus is the rightful offspring, the recipient of the promise of blessing to Abraham. The Apostle Paul makes clear that Jesus is the offspring who is the key to this promise. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Did you catch that? The Apostle Paul links Jesus back to the Abrahamic promise of blessing, that he is the offspring. The promises to Abraham will be fulfilled in and through Jesus, which means that the blessing extends not just to those who share Abraham's physical genes, those who are biologically his descendants. No, this blessing will extend also to those who share in the faith of Abraham, those who are united with Jesus Christ through faith. Again, to quote Paul from Galatians chapter three, he says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The Apostle Paul says that this blessing for all the nations is the gospel. It's the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the blessing God has promised that is made available to all the families of the earth. And we can come to taste those blessings through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.14 says, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. So what will this blessing mean for the world? It will mean rest for those who are weary, number one. Flip back, I love this, in Genesis chapter four. Again, we see the hopes of God's people. Genesis chapter four, in verse 25. Nope, not Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter five. <clears throat> Verse 28, after a long line of people who lived, labored, loved, and then died, 
lived, labored, loved, and then died. You see this cycle of difficulty in life. There's offspring, but death always comes at the end. We see in verse 28 that a man named Lamech had lived 182 years and fathered a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Again, in the naming of the offspring, we see hope for the reversal of the curse. We see hope for rest. Maybe Noah will be the one. Noah would be greatly used by God to preserve the human race, but he would not be the one to bring rest. But Jesus is. Jesus says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's good news for weary sinners who live under the curse. This blessing will not only mean rest, it will mean life for those who are subject to death. The curse means that you will die. All of us are dying right now. And if Jesus doesn't come back soon, all of us will one day be buried. These bodies will wear out and die. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. In Jesus, we find relief from the curse of death. That's the blessing of the gospel, is the hope of eternal life. This blessing also includes a reparation, the restoration of our relationship with God. Remember what happened for the people of God, for Adam and Eve when they sinned? They were exiled from the garden. They could no longer dwell with God. They could no longer walk with him. But in Jesus, in the gospel, we are reconciled with the Father. That's the language of reconciliation that we see in in 2 Corinthians 5. And in the, the book of Colossians, we see that Christ's work and the shedding of his blood reconciles us with God. That the enmity, the hostility, the problem that exists between fallen people and a holy God, that is dealt with, it is removed, it is restored through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The blessing promised to Abraham, the undoing of our weariness and our death and our separation from God, Jesus brings the resolution of all of those problems. And this blessing promised to Abraham also means an inheritance. It means a place. Adam and Eve were driven away from the garden. And the human race ever since has been far from home. But the blessing of an inheritance and land for Abraham has expanded in Jesus to mean an inheritance for all of us. That there's a new heaven and a new earth and we will receive an inheritance with Jesus. A place where we can belong so that we can enjoy our restored relationship with God. This is the blessing that comes to us through Jesus. So our hopes are tethered to the promised offspring because he brings the blessing of Abraham, hope of salvation, to all the families of the earth. Jesus is our hope, hope for people who live under the curse. We find this hope in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. So as you celebrate Christmas, as you look at that baby, he is not only the promised offspring of the woman who triumphs over the enemy, he's also the promised offspring of Abraham who brings divine blessing to all the families of the earth. 
But there's a third aspect, a third reason for this hope. And this we find in Genesis chapter 49. The offspring of Judah will rule over God's kingdom. He will rule over God's kingdom. Flip over to Genesis chapter 49. See, you thought it was going to take a long time, but we just skipped a really big chunk in the book of Genesis. We're almost to the end. So the offspring gives victory over the enemy. He brings the blessing of God to the nations. But this offspring is also destined to rule over God's kingdom. At this point in the book of Genesis, Abraham has died. His son Isaac, the son of promise, has died. And now the time has come for Jacob to die. And his entire family, if you know the story of Joseph, that remarkable story, his entire family has been guided by the surprising providence of God. They are no longer in the land of Canaan. They're actually in Egypt. They've been rescued there. They're being sustained despite a terrible famine on the land because of Joseph's wise planning and his gracious generosity, which is really just God's perfect faithfulness to preserve his people. So Jacob is an old man. He gathers his sons to him, all 12, the heads of what would one day be uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can almost imagine, if you would, this really important scene. They're waiting with bated breath to hear the final words of their father, Jacob, who is Israel, the one who spoke with God at Bethel and received the promise, the one who was the bearer of the covenant. They're waiting to see what he will say as he prepares to pass the baton of being the recipient of the promise, the, 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 the line of the offspring, he's going to pass that on to his sons. Well, he starts naming each one of his sons. He starts with Reuben, the oldest. But Reuben will not receive the privilege and the status of the firstborn. He will not be the recipient of the promise because of his ungodly character. Jacob said that he's unstable as water. He moves on to the next two, Simeon and Levi, but they will also forfeit the blessing. If you know the the stories in Genesis, they had conspired together to get a really excessive form of revenge on the city of Shechem. Someone had assaulted their sister there. And so they go and they slaughter everyone. And Jacob denounced their motives as unrighteous, says they're full of anger and cruelty. He denounces their actions as being unjust. It was excessive and impulsive violence. So they will not receive the promised blessing. But then he comes to Judah. He comes to Judah, and it's to Judah that the blessing of the firstborn is given. And again, if you've read the book of Genesis, you might be scratching your head saying, wait a second, Judah is no saint either. He has a checkered past just like his brothers. He was the ringleader of the plot to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. And he was exposed publicly for his immorality and his mistreatment of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Judah has major character flaws. But if you read carefully through the story of Joseph, we learn that Judah is a changed man. He demonstrated repentance and is remarkably different than he was in his younger years. Though formerly he was selfish and cruel and proud, in the end we see Judah become a man who is sacrificial, who is compassionate, and who is humble. At the beginning of the Joseph story, Judah is conspiring to sell his brother into slavery. But at the end of the Joseph story, we find that Judah is the one who offers himself as a substitute to win Benjamin's freedom. 
Joseph was playing mind games with his brothers, trying to figure out if they had changed or not, whether or not he could trust them. And he incarcerates his baby brother, Benjamin, who was obviously the favorite. He wanted to see how they would treat Benjamin, if they would do to Benjamin what they did to him years ago. And Judah offers himself in exchange for Benjamin's freedom. It's a remarkable story of grace, a changed heart, a changed man. And so adding grace to grace, God grants Judah the great privilege of bearing the blessing, a blessing that will shape the history of Israel and ultimately shape the history of the world. So let's pick up in verse 8 of Genesis 49. Jacob pronounces this blessing to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. There's a prophetic blessing that is pronounced here upon Judah and upon Judah's offspring, a blessing that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the descendant of David, who is from the tribe of Judah. Let's look at this blessing. The offspring of Judah will be supreme. And he'll be supreme, not just over his family. He says, his brothers shall praise you, in verse 8, but also supreme over his foes. He says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. To have your hand on the neck of your enemies is a symbol of dominance. It will take great power to achieve this. And Judah is destined for power. This symbolism of power is picked up and expanded in the imagery of a lion in verse 9. That Judah is a lion's cub and he crouches over his prey and no one dares to rouse him. Have you ever seen a dog get mad? Maybe it's a really friendly dog, a very nice dog, but you try to take his food. You try to take his treat. You try to take his bone away. That's a really good way to get bit, isn't it? We'll now amplify that imagery to that of a lion. Who would dare to interrupt a lion while he's feeding to try to take his food away from him? This imagery is used to describe the power and the dominance of the descendants of Judah. Nobody will mess with the king of beasts. They're the top predator in the food chain. And a lion need not fear anyone or anything. Jacob says that this power and this this prominence will not fade in verse 10. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The scepter or the ruler's staff is a symbol of kingly authority. And it says it will not depart from between his feet. This is a a euphemistic reference to the descendants of Judah, to his offspring. Generation after generation, kings will come through this line. This fits what God told Abraham years before in Genesis 17. He said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Jacob said, kings will come not through any of the other brothers, but through Judah and his offspring. 
But each of these kings, each of these rulers will be a temporary steward of the scepter. They will be waiting for the ultimate king who will one day come. And to this king, Jacob says, there will be tribute and obedience from all the nations. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, verse 10, until tribute comes to him, to this singular offspring who is destined to rule and to reign, not just as a king over Israel, but as a king over all the kings. This is something special. The lion from the tribe of Judah will roar and the nations will come trembling to him. And what will it be like when this ruler comes, when this ruler is established? Well, Jacob describes here what really looks like the dawning of a new age, a time of, of, of un, uncomparable peace and blessing and abundance that is so different than the difficulty of life under the curse. Look at the imagery of what the kingdom will be like in verse 11. It says, he binds his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. It says he will be riding not a war horse, he'll be riding a donkey. This symbolizes time of peace. Later, Zechariah will pick up this imagery of a donkey when he prophesied about the Messiah to come. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah picks up the exact language of Genesis 49, talking about this coming king, this Messiah, who will reign during a time of great peace, seated on a donkey. And look, Jacob says he will hitch his animal, his donkey, to a vine. Now, this may not immediately make a lot of sense to us, but maybe I can explain. Um, donkeys eat anything green that they can reach. They will, anything they can get their teeth on. And a vine, a grapevine, is something that is very delicate. It's something that's very valuable because of its crop. It's something that takes a lot of care, a lot of very careful pruning. And so you would never want to tie up your donkey to your most precious commodity. The donkey's going to destroy it. This is like using a $100 bill for a Kleenex, wadding it up and throwing it away. Who does that? Only really rich people, right? So this symbolism of tying his donkey to the vine is symbolic of a time of such abundance, such blessing, such richness and fertility that you may as well hitch your donkey to the vine because there's plenty more where that came from. We see another image that's just like it. He says he'll be washing his clothes in wine. Again, that's the most expensive drink of the day. But that's not a big deal if the land is flowing with milk and honey and if there's fruitful vines abounding everywhere. What's the point of this? Under the reign of this king, Jacob is saying, life will be a never-ending feast. There will be such abundance and blessing that the old days where toil was difficult, where thorns and thistles abounded, where we have to scrape and press and break our back just to get by, that will be a distant memory. Because the dawning of the new age when this king comes to reign will be a time of incredible peace and abundance and blessing. 
So who is this future king? Well, on this side of the New Testament, we know the answer, don't we? In John chapter 2, we find Jesus coming to a wedding at Cana, Cana, and the first miracle he performs is what? He turns water into wine. He's signaling that the Messiah is now among them, and wine will be present in abundance when Jesus is there. The kingdom is near in Christ. In Matthew 21, we find Jesus entering Jerusalem as her Messiah, and he's seated on what? On a donkey, on a foal of a donkey, displaying that the king of kings whose coming reign would bring about peace, that he was there right in the midst of Jerusalem. In Revelation, the apostle John writes in chapter five, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. This symbolism of the donkey and wine and the lion of Judah is fulfilled in Jesus. This ancient blessing points us to Christ. And it's to Jesus that the obedience of the peoples will come. Psalm 2 invites the kings of the earth to come and bow and worship Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 7 announces that there will be no end to his kingdom. In Luke chapter 1, the angel announces, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And this ancient blessing pronounced by Jacob, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we find the first hints of a glorious king, an eternal kingdom, a universal dominion, which brings in a new age, a new era of unparalleled peace and blessing. A time where we experience prosperity instead of toiling in a cursed world. A time where the nations come to their God rather than being scattered like they were at Babel. A time where the nations come in obedience rather than walking in rebellion. A time where there is a glorious reign by a son of Adam. God's plan from the beginning to have his his kingly representative ruling in the earth, that all of that comes together in Jesus Christ. So why is that a cause for hope for us? Well, we are very simply invited in, in the New Testament to come by faith to Jesus Christ and that in him we become citizens of that kingdom, that with Christ we are invited to have a seat at the table for that feast, that those who trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin and recognize him as their Lord, that they will experience eternal life and peace and blessing in the kingdom that will have no end. Listen, there is hope in Jesus for us. When we look around at this world and we see how broken society is, we see how corrupt human rulers are, we see the damage and the grief that it causes. We long for a restored kingdom, don't we? We long for something better than what we have today. And Jesus is bringing that something better. There is hope in Jesus for those who long to see righteousness exalted and to see justice established. Don't you want that? Don't you look at the world around us and even in our own experiences and we say, how long, O oh Lord, will you let this world be so broken? 
We want justice. We want righteousness to be established. And it's going to be. It's going to be when Jesus returns. There's hope in Jesus for those who long to see things made right because one day we're going to witness the Lamb of God, the one who bled on a cross. We will see him take his place on the throne as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Friends, this season, the Christmas season, is a glorious reminder of where our hope really lies. Our hope is not in ourselves. It can't be. Our hope is not in human institutions, human governments, human leaders, human movements. It can't be. Our hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not just sentimental optimism that just hang in there because hopefully someday things will get better on their own. No, that's not our hope. Our hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ the promised offspring. Our hope is tethered to him. He is the seed of the woman. He is the blessing of Abraham. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, which means that celebrating his birth this Christmas means that we're celebrating the redemptive plans, the redemptive purposes, the redemptive promises of God. And that's where we find our hope. So is your hope today tethered to the promised offspring? Is your hope in Jesus Christ? Because nothing else will do. Everyone else, everything else will let you down. But Jesus will not. If your hope is in him, then this season will not merely be about sentimental traditions, even though it's fine to enjoy those. The season will not even be about good food and time with family, as much of a blessing as that can be. For you, if your hope is in Christ, this season will be marked by a sense of awe, a sense of wonder at all that God has done and will do for us through the promised offspring, through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, it is awesome in the true sense of that word. It fills us with awe to look at how your grace has been woven throughout the centuries to bring about salvation for people like us who are weary of sin, weary of sickness, weary of death, weary of living life in a broken world. We know there is victory, that there's blessing, that there's hope of an eternal kingdom in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray just very simply that this December you would fix our eyes on Jesus and may our hope in him be a cause for joy as we worship and adore our Savior. Amen.